Welcome to the Sport Fuels Life podcast, where we're bringing you interviews with coaches and athletes at the top of their game. This is a community to support coaches, athletes, and fans who share a passion for making the world a better place through athletics. We are serving our community and providing a variety of resources to grow and win as a team in the sports we play and the life we live. We are your hosts. I'm Ashley. And I'm Megan. And we're so excited to bring you all things Sport Feels Life. Welcome to the show. For our listeners out there who may not know you yet, if you don't mind, maybe just share your story with us. Tell us where you're from and how you got to where you are today. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. I'm, I'm truly honored. Um, all right, so where do we begin? Uh, born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, which not many people know of because I don't have the accent, obviously. Um, I was born in probably one of the most dangerous parts of, of Belfast, which is in the, in the North of Ireland. And, and if you know a little bit of history of Northern Ireland, <clears throat> they've always had their troubles with religion uh, issues and wars. Um, at the age of six, we immigrated to South Africa, which was in the in the times of apartheid South Africa. So I have a very interesting start to start to my life. Um, lived in South Africa for around about 20 years. I was educated there. I felt very, very privileged to live through the transition of um, apartheid South Africa, which obviously I, I, I was too young to understand, but obviously I completely uh, disagree with. Um, and the transition of obviously Nelson Mandela being released from prison, watching the inauguration. So all these things, I feel I was really brought up in a, a very uh, interesting and privileged time to watch all this, these transitions. And one of the key things why I'm so, I think I'm so passionate about leadership is watching how Nelson Mandela transitioned um, an apartheid South Africa into a, dem, a, a, dem, a democracy. So I don't want to get too political here, but um, you know, I love leadership. And I think that's what really ignited my fire was seeing how Nelson Mandela did that. Um, was very keen on sports from a very young age. I had three brothers, so uh, older brothers than me. So it toughened me up because it'd be obviously uh, world championships going on in the backyard and uh, rugby and cricket and soccer and all those type of South African or Southern Hemisphere sports, for example. Um, but it was tennis that I, I took my first love to and um, became pretty good at it, but we couldn't afford the coaching. Um, we didn't have a lot of money growing up and I got to a level where I needed to get coaching. But I can remember as a 10, 11 year old, and I don't know where this came from, um, my parents were never around to, to, at the sports event. They were, they were always working obviously to provide a, a roof above us and, and food on the table. But I would actually sit alongside tennis courts and listen to coaches working with their players. And then I'd steal the information and I'd go practice it down on another court. So for example, if the coach was telling a player, make a C shape on your forehand, I would then go, okay. I would go hit against the wall and try and make a C shape with my forehand. So, I mean, at 10, 11, I was already a thief. I mean, I was stealing information from coaches. Um, but sport definitely was, was definitely my first love and, and, and still is. And, and I'm so uh, grateful and blessed to still be in sport as a job today. Um, wasn't too much of an academic. In fact, what's funny is I was, I've written four books. I'm on my fifth now, but I flunked English and, and biology in school. In fact, I was kicked out of the class one day because I was looking out the window watching the, um, the phys ed session going on. They were playing a sport outside. And the teacher said to me, Alistair, would you rather be, be outside? And I said, in fact, to be honest, I would. <laughs> so I wasn't invited back for the rest of the, the, the semester there. I, I was playing sports outside. 
Um, stopped tennis at around about 14 because we couldn't afford it. So I thought, well, what's another sport I like that doesn't cost money? Running. Okay, let's go run. I became the South African national under 16 champion on, on, in five kilometers on the road uh, with a best time of 15.07, if anyone knows what you know, 5K running time is. Um, I got a little bit injured, I think, when I was 17, and somebody said, why don't you ride a bike to, to keep yourself fit? And I said, oh, it's not a bad idea. Got hooked. I thought, cool, let's try a triathlon. Um, long story short, wasn't a great swimmer. I, I took up duathlon, which is running and biking, became the South African national champion twice and represented uh, my country five times at five world championships in, um, in Australia, Belgium, Cancun, uh, where were the other two? Uh, Alpharetta, Georgia, and the other one I can't remember. It was so, so long ago. Um, so I had, a good, I had a good athletic career. Um, Thank goodness I was hardly ever injured. I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. Uh, I, after my career, I took up marathons. I've run 29 marathons. Again, never an injury. I don't know if I'm just playing lucky or whatever, but I think I was really good at handling the small details of foam rolling, stretching properly. Things that I, I, I used to pass on and still do to the athletes I work with today is take care of the small details because that's what's going to give you longevity. And it's the things people don't necessarily like to do. But I've watched this in my own career of how many people or how many athletes I see that are lazy. They're, they're, they're talented. They're very good, but they're lazy with the things they don't like to do and they end up injured more. It's, it's, it's a commonality I see. So, um, uh, yeah, so left South Africa when I was about 21 to travel the world and, and, and compete. I uh, lived in numerous countries, Germany, Italy, uh, the UK, France, Holland, uh, where I was racing for professional teams. In that same time, I was still working as in the fitness industry as a, per, a personal trainer as well to supplement the, the income. Um, then let's see, at the age of 33, I moved to the United States and, and I've been here ever since. My goodness, you've just had such a journey. You just dropped so much on us and it's like so casual. You're just like, and I've lived everywhere. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty much. Yeah, I've been I've been very very lucky. I mean, traveling is just the the absolute best thing. And you know, we're in this COVID year right now, and it's been honestly the most challenging year for me ever. Um, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I I have a, a home and all these things, but um, not to travel. It's it's the I know like last year for example, I was on the road 180 days, um, which I love. I absolutely love it. And this year has been tough uh, being you know, um, in, in my home and stuck, so to say, but hopefully it's, you know, it's not going to be too long until we start traveling again. Okay. So where's the first place that you will go once the travel is lifted and we can actually go places safely again? Um, you know, usually in December, I would go to, uh, Bangkok, Thailand to, to work with uh, some players there. And that's been for the last two years, but that's not going to happen this year. That was always, always very, very nice. Even though all I saw was the hotel to the training facility. Um, when you're working with professional athletes, you, you don't really get days off, you know? So I didn't see anything in, in Thailand yet, to be honest. Um, people always say, have you been to Phuket? Have you been here or there? No. Um, and that's what it's like when you're working on the a professional tour or with athletes is that it's hotel and hotel and facility, hotel and facility the whole time and restaurant in between. Um, where's the first place I would like to go? Um, that is a very, very good question. You know, I've always wanted to go to Cuba. Um, I was chatting to, to a 
a young lady on, on Sunday. I play some beach tennis here in, in Florida. And uh, she was from Cuba. And I, it's always a place that's intrigued me. And totally not far from where you are now either. <laughs> no, no. I think it's like, I think the flight is like, like 90 minutes from, um, no. Um, I was looking at the southernmost point of, of the Keys is 91 miles from Cuba. That's how close there, it is. Wow. I did not realize that. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just thinking, okay, so if you were to end up, you know, going to Thailand, you mentioned working with athletes. I'm curious. So what's the, what's a day like in that job? Which, take us through that. I'm, I'm a little curious to hear kind of how your day goes and working with the athletes as you're traveling around the world. Sure. Well, um, first of all, um, it, it would basically either be with golfers or tennis players because those are really only the two sports that can afford to have a team. Uh, and I'm talking top players in the world, like top 50 can, can have a team of, of, of uh, around them. It's very expensive. So for example, uh, going to Thailand, I was working with a, a Korean player called Hong Chung. Uh, he reached the semifinals of Australian Open, um, beat Djokovic, really, really great player. Um, so we would have two weeks there possibly, or three weeks. Um, he's paying the hotel for four or five of us, meals all day, everything. So you can just imagine how expensive this gets, our salary, our salary as well. Um, usually I wake up very early in the morning because I have a morning routine. So breakfast, I would usually be first at breakfast, but breakfast would usually be around about nine o'clock. Um, tennis players like to sleep in, get their sleep. That's one thing I've realized as well. I'd like to, I'd like to get in first of all, which was, uh, you know, some exercise, some reading, uh, some thoughtfulness, for example. And I'd like to, you know, just get down there early, be prepared, look fresh, look awake, you know, as, as a coach, as a, a performance um, uh, leader, you need to be the energy. You need to be, you can't be there looking tired at the table and complaining about things. You, even if you don't feel like it, you have to be that person. And, uh, you know, otherwise, you know, you're creating a, a poor energy around you. So we'd have breakfast, we'd maybe leave for the tennis courts at 10 o'clock, for example, warm up, um, uh, practice, finish maybe around 1230, shower, lunch, uh, the athlete would probably have some treatment, then we'd have a second session later on in the afternoon between four and six, uh, back to the hotel, shower, change, restaurant, and, and then nine, nine 30 to bed. So you'd have that for three straight weeks, which, which I love because that's something I've always been used to is like routine, routine. And, um, but last year was really, really cool. We went to, uh, Thailand first, and then we flew to uh, Abu Dhabi, where he was playing an exhibition with Nadal and Djokovic. And um, we, we stayed in a, a ridiculous villa there. So we, we got spoiled. <laughs> that sounds like fun. <laughs> it was. Um, working with elite athletes at this level, what's your main, I guess, what's the biggest challenge that you face when working with people at that level? Because obviously it's not fundamentals or anything like that. It's to me, maybe more of a mindset or something. I don't know. I'm just curious what, what would yeah. challenge you. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm not the coach I was um, 20 years ago. Thank goodness. I'm actually, I'm not the person I was five years ago. I always say, if you're not evolving and, um, you know, if you're not looking back to five years ago and saying, I can't believe I was that person, then you're not evolving. You're not growing. You're not, you're not a life learner, for example. That's just something I've believed. But um, I think the challenges are, um, 
trust is a big thing when you're working with elite athletes because they're elite for a reason. They've got there for a reason. If you're trying to come in there and change things and, and, and put in your methodology straight away, they'll, they'll resist that very quickly. You won't find yourself working very long because they're saying, why should I change this when I've had success? So you really, at, at elite level, you have to be really convincing. You have to be really, uh, if you're going to sell something as in a change or a tweak, you, you better make sure you sell it very well. And, and, you know, it, it can a lot of the times go wrong as in, you know, you change something, they lose a match or they play poorly, then they're, you know, you can lose trust in that, for example. So that is, that is one of the big challenges working with the athletes is that, you know, uh, I've learned over the years to listen more. I call it 80, 20, listen 80% of the time and talk 20% of the time as for the, the coach I was 20 years ago would be talking 80% of the time and, and hardly listening. Um, because I'm just trying to get my, my point across, for example, it's also a good, it's also a good lesson for uh, marriage and, and relationships as well. It's become a good listener. So your, your ears never get you in trouble. Um, so yeah, that would, that would be one of the, that one of the challenges um, is, is the trust factor of, of those athletes. That's so true. Honestly, the world would be a better place if everyone practiced listening 80% of the time and talking 20% of the time. I'm still working on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. As I guess, like, can we talk about some of your books? I know you've got a whole bunch of titles, but um, is is your most recent the Champion Mindset? Uh, no, Champion Minded was my second. Um, got it. My latest one is uh, Developing a Winning Attitude and Mindset. Okay, so when you're coming up with these titles, and obviously, like, there's a lot of content in there. How are you? How are you coming to this understanding and how are you able to kind of put it into a vocabulary that's translatable to other people reading? I always like to joke that I'm, that I'm not the most smartest, smartest guy, but I keep things very, very simple. So I think that's been part of, if I can say, being uh, successful in, in writing the books and then being, being received so well, because the message is very simple. I'm, um, there's no impre uh, impressive words in there that you might be confused about. So I think that's been part of the success is the simplicity of it, of I get it, you know, it's, or I can relate to this. So, you know, writing these books has, has basically been my journey. And it's almost like a, a diary, if you like. Seven Keys to Being a Great Coach was all, all my experiences of working around the world with athletes and my failures and, and successes and working in Russia and working in Czech Republic and these places where, you know, the, the mentality, the culture is very different, the way you approach things. Um, you know, when I was working in Russia with the number one tennis player in the world at, at the time, Dinara Safina, their, their coaching there is very much on not so much positivity, but more um, uh, you're not good enough. You know, that's, you know that, that type of mentality, and that's what they aspire to. As for, I, I can't coach like that here in the United States. So here we're more positive. Here we're more um, supportive. For example, there they're like, you know, you got to really prove it. You got to really prove if you're good, for example. So all those types of experiences, experiences of working with some great coaches. So, you know, I put it together in the book. Champion minded is something that um, for me, I can relate to because I was not the most talented, even though I, I had good results as a junior, but I really had to work much more than, than the other athletes to, to get to, to that level, for example. In fact, when I was in school, I wasn't even in the, in the track team until I was 15, 16. So uh, we had a very, very strong athletic um, uh, school, so at high school. Um, so, yeah, uh, th that's, 
yeah, I, I actually forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> what was the question again? Uh, we were just kind of asking you about your books, and I'm glad you opened Thank up you. on a little bit. I love reading those sorts of books myself, so I will definitely have to check them out. I guess going back to uh, the seven keys to being a great coach. So if you were to break it down and maybe for our listeners, what would you say are the top three keys to being a great coach that they could start implementing today? Well, the seven keys are, um, the, fir the first one is uh, standards. Second one is uh, your method. The third one is, um, your ability to adapt. The fourth one is your energy. Fifth is your interpersonal skills. Sixth is your fundamentals. And seven is your investment, investment in yourself. I'm glad I remembered those. So <laughs> I, I have done conferences where I have forgot a key here and there, and then people want to know, did I really write the book? But um, that's a good question. What would be the top three? I would say um, in no particular order, investing in yourself daily. The second one would be um, interpersonal skills. Your best ability is your likability. That's one thing I've learned as I've gone on the journey is that people don't want to work with a jerk, even if you're very good. You know, they'll find the right person instead of the best person. And that's something I always advise coaches and my job and, and leaders is find the right person, not the best person uh, that fits. Um, and then I'd say um, energy is the energy you bring. You know, like I said, you know, you, 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 if you're a leader, if you're a coach, you have to bring the right energy, even if you don't feel like it. In fact, in the book, I describe it to being like a DJ on a morning show on the radio. You know, you, no matter what's going on in your life, you have to pitch up pumped and happy, you know, and, and that's like coaching as well. You've got to leave your stuff behind, your baggage behind. And when you're in front of your athletes, you're, you're the energy. Yeah, that's also true. And they say, you know, especially when you're trying to reach that elite level, it's really that consistency over time is what separates them. So it's just doing what needs to be done, maybe not necessarily when you're feeling your best, but it also just sounds like these are great skills that would lead you to success in any avenue of life that you would choose. If you can just be that energy that's positive and, you know, going places and influencing people. Um, Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, getting back to champion minded, that that's, um, what it's about is not, you don't have to be the most talented. It's that you can bring these controllables every day. And that's the message I wanted to get across in that book because the subtitle is creating excellence in sports and in life. And, you know, it's got a very young audience, um, like uh, high school, college type of uh, uh, age group, for example, that it's life lessons of what, just like you said there now, what sports teaches us. And, and it's very, very similar to life. There's going to be success. There's going to be failure. There's going to be doubt. There's going to be heartbreaks, um, you know, and, and those are those are methods that can help us through those things. That is the truth. I feel like sports has taught me more about life than any other thing that I've ever been involved in. Um, I want to switch gears and talk about your Twitter because I was kind of stalking you yesterday. And um, one of your recent tweets was talking about the top 10 traits of a good team player. And you said, they own their culture. That was number one. And I'd really love for you to maybe expound on that a little bit and talk about um, how individuals can cultivate their own culture, because I think we hear a lot about team culture. It's such a buzzword right now. But um, to look more at it on an individual level, I thought was a really interesting point that you made. So I'd love to hear more. 
Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, you know, culture starts at the top. It starts with leadership. You know, if your leader is not the example or they have double standards, then you're not going to have a good culture full stop because that's where, where it begins, for example. But accountability and ownership and culture is in, in great teams is where the, the players own it in terms of they're not waiting for the coach to call out poor behavior or poor performance. The players are doing it themselves in, in, a, in a respectful way, for example. So that's what it means really for players to own their culture. In fact, just before I, I got on this call, I'm working on a new uh, presentation, which is uh, winning teams and culture uh, with leadership lessons. And one of my case studies is, was the um, United States women's soccer team with under Jill Ellis. She was the coach there between 2014 and, and 2019. And one of the key, key elements to the success of, of the team um, was that players had to be accountable and own the culture, that it's not her uh, being the only one that's calling out, like I said, poor behaviors, et cetera. So, you know, again, you know, and she mentioned as well, you know, sometimes I didn't select the best players for the squad because the chemistry wasn't, you know, the chemistry wouldn't be good, for example. And that's a, a real lesson for, for all leaders, coaches, managers out there is, again, I, I keep saying it, find the, find the right people that bring out the best in each other. Uh, we've seen, you know, on basketball teams, for example, where, you know, it could be the star player, but, you know, they, they, they don't bring out the best in others, for example, and the team suffers because of that. So, um, you know, like you said, culture is, culture is a buzzword and it's very, very funny. And that's a great question you asked her because when I go to a group and I ask them to find culture, uh, some of them struggle with that question. I'm, I'm even talking leaders. Uh, you'll probably have, if there's 20 people in the room, you'll probably have 20 different answers to what culture really is. But for me, it's very simple. It's about your beliefs, which produce your outcomes, which uh, produce your results. You know, behaviors are, are the, the biggest things that, that influence outcomes. So um, in a nutshell, that really is what, what culture is to me and, and what ownership is in a team of how players um, own their culture, for example. That leads me to another question. So in talking about culture and, you know, you mentioned that the biggest key to a success in a team was that accountability and that ownership. And some athletes have that naturally, others may not. So I'm wondering, and you may or may not have an answer for this, but how do you instill that into athletes who may not have that as well as you know, that team chemistry is huge. And if you have those negative characters on a team, maybe not necessarily at the elite level, but approaching it, um, how do you combat that to reshape the team and make the most with what you have and have that positive energy override maybe some negative mindsets on the team? Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, not, not everyone has if I can call it for better terms, the luxury of uh, getting rid of people, so to say, you know, in professional sports, you can, because, you know, you, you have that ability. Um, you know, I think it's very clear from the outset is expectations, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, how we want this team to, to operate is very important to give uh, the players a, a, a vision, a picture of how we want to be, for example. I think that's very important. Um, yes. What do you do with the bad apples? For example, well, that's a very tough thing because, and I've dealt with this in colleges as well, where, you know, there's maybe a bad apple in the team and they bring the chemistry down and they're people that just won't change. You know, you can be the best coach you can be the best leader, but you can't change people. That change has to happen in yourself. You can't make somebody else more positive. 
that choice is, is their, their own, for example. But in fact, we've had to move people on. And, and just talking about the U.S. women's team as well with Jill Ellis, she said, you know, being a leader is make, having the hard conversations and making the tough calls and, and, and being criticized for, for maybe dropping a player or getting rid of somebody because they're just not the right fit for the team. And, you know, there's a, there's a saying I have, and I think I had it in, in Seven Keys to Being a Great Coach, is that uh, not everybody w will adhere to your, your standards, uh, you know, because not everybody is aiming for excellence. So you, the most important thing is that you find the right people. Um, how do you deal, like you said, with the, the negative influences? Well, one-on-one -on -one, uh, meetings are very important, discussions are very important, seeing things from their, their point of view, um, building up a relationship with them and not being... Uh, you know, a leader has to be adaptable to different personalities, of course. But, you know, if you can't, let's just say, win that person over a period of time, then the best for both parties is that that player moves on. That's so true. It's hard, but it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And that is that that's the most common question I get in, in my line of work of, of consulting is like you just asked there, what do we do about the negative energy, the influencers and the bad apples, you know, um, it's very hard to change character. It's, it's easy to teach skills and, and integrate skills of, of, you know, in a game, but uh, character, I believe once you've got to the ages of 18, 19, I'm not saying character can't change, but it's very, very difficult because uh, I know you, you guys are, are pretty young, but when you were 21 or when I was 21, you think you know it all. You know, you really think you know know what it's all about, and then you realize the more, older you get, you realize I didn't know much, and uh, <laughs> and that's the same thing. You know, I like to I like to look back five years ago and, and and be proud to say thank goodness I'm not that person anymore, and I hope in five years time I, I look back at, at at that point as well. That's awesome. I think so much that you know, there's definitely uh, so much wisdom seeping out of you, and there's clearly some huge life experiences that you've had. So I'm curious, how would you say your relationship with your coaches over the course of your own sports journey, your own individual journey has helped you shape as a person and put you in a position to call out greatness in others? Mm. I think, um, I think a major influence for me was two people in my life. First of all, my mother, um, who's thank goodness is still alive today and who I have daily conversation with. She's back in South Africa, an incredible woman. So, you know, when a man has a role model as, as a mother, it's, it's, I believe one of the most powerful things. Um, the second one was also a female uh, teacher in school who was our track and field coach. Uh, Caroline Foster was her name and um, incredible woman uh, like my mom as well, tough, but fair, uh, knowing when to, knowing when you needed a kick up the butt and when you needed a, a hug, for example. So those were two very, very powerful elements for me to go on and work with a lot of female athletes. I had more female athletes younger. Um, I think because there was just that un better understanding, for example. Um, you know, if you think back about to your school, for example, the teachers that you can remember that really impacted you, there's probably not more than two or three, you know, if, if you're lucky that really impacted your life where you still think about it. And for me, it, it definitely was those two. Of course, there's been a lot of other people and coaches along the way that, that have, um, have had an influence on me, be it through the way that coach communicated or the way they, um, how they behaved in front of athletes, where I've thought, I like that, I like that. I've taken little bits and pieces, but the two major influences for me were uh, definitely my mom, my mom and, and that teacher in school. And, and my mom was a great athlete. She was a, 
Olympic and Commonwealth um, trialist in, in the 400 meters. So I got a little, I think I've got a little bit of genetics there as well. <laughs> so being in the position that you are today, you know, having these incredible influences on your life and now you're in a position to be a major influence to several others. What way do you hope to influence others and maybe even just improve their perspective on life as well as, you know, how you can even improve just the state of the world in general, you know, dreaming big. We all have the ability to influence others. You know, you can't inspire others if you, if you can't inspire yourself. So, you know, one thing that was very important for me is that you've got to define what success is to you. You know, if I ask a, a group of people and I'm probably going to have to ask you what the question was again, because I'm going off here on a, another journey, but um, everybody wants to be successful. You know, if I ask a, a group of people, you know, who wants to be successful, all the hands go up. And then I ask, well, do, have you defined what success is to you? So it's very important that you define success. And success to me is very, very simple. Success to me is waking up healthy, which might be cliche, but you lose your health, you'll pay any money to get it back. And it's to wake up and, and do what I want to do with who I want to do it with. So for example, it's, it's, for example, it's a choice for me to, to spend this time with you, which I'm so grateful for, for example. But I also have the choice not to. So it's, it's, you know, discipline gives you freedom. The harder I worked in the first part of my, my journey, the more it gave me the ability to now to work for myself and, and call my day. And this is what I'm going to do today. These are the clients I want to work with. These are the clients I'm not going to take on, for example. So um, that, was, that was a major important thing is to find success. Um, a big thing as well as my purpose is also to inspire a lot of people and, and help, help them find their purpose as well. So through mediums like the book and Twitter, for example, as you just mentioned there, I'm able to add value to the lives of others. In fact, my 10 rules of success, and I can read those to you, um, are one of those, I think it's number seven, is add value to the lives of others. And it's so easy. If you ask, okay, well, how do you add value to the lives of others? Is simple. We have social media. Put positivity out there. I won't post anything unless it's hip, H-I-P, helpful, inspiring, and positive. If it's not, why am I posting it? You know, it's, of course, it's so easy sometimes to read something and maybe um, get a little upset about it. You really want to give your opinion back on that. But, you know, just emotional intelligence, just hold back and go, is this hip? Is this helpful? Is this inspiring? Is it positive? If it's not, then don't write it. Don't add it. I see, I've seen so many people, I'm not saying mess up careers, some have, but re mess reputations by just a stupid tweet or a, a comeback or arguing a heated discussion online, for example, that the whole world can see. Next time I'm thinking of a partner or, or going into a partnership and that person was had that heated argument online, I probably wouldn't want to do business with them. I'll be a partner with them. So yes, purpose is important. Inspiring yourself is important. Defining success, what success is to you is important. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answers the question. <laughs> Well said. Um, okay. Well, what's, I guess, what are you excited about and what are you looking forward to? I know it's like a weird year and lots of people are struggling to answer that question, but um, what's next for you, I guess? Good question. No, no traveling planned for this year, unfortunately. Um, at home, I'm busy working on book number five. So that's exciting, even though it's, it's sometimes not so exciting sitting in front of the, the laptop at night or whatever writing, but 
um, you know, I just think of the vision of that book being out there, that book inspiring others and, and helping others. So that's what keeps my motivation going there. Uh, because like anything else, there's just days you just, you don't feel like it, like sitting there and now writing. And, and sometimes you have what you call writer's block, where you're just looking at the screen going, I have no clue what I'm going to write. Uh, and then at times it's like just flowing out of you, for example. So um, that excites me also because I've had more time at home. I've been able to work on, on my, um, my physical side and, and do more, do more sports, which has been great. Obviously being in Florida, we have all year round, we have um, decent weather, good weather. Um, what else is, is exciting me at the moment? That's, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, what's exciting me is that even though it's a tough year and for, for all of us in one way, we've all been impacted is what gets me through is my vision of next year of all this work I'm putting in now, you know, I'm like, I'm just, I'm just sowing seeds right now. Yes. The money's not coming in like, like it used to for, for anybody who's working for themselves right now, unless you're selling hand sanitizer or, or toilet paper. But, um, you know, so obviously I'm, I'm seeing my bank balance go, go down every month in a way or, or whatever, but I know that I'm sowing seeds. So that's, that's positive. And I know that that's all going to come back twofold, threefold in the future of all these little things I'm doing right now. So, you know, to the listeners out there, uh, people that are following, um, just keep sowing seeds because that harvest will, you'll reap that harvest eventually. I like that. And I'm going to have to remember that myself. And it just, it's kind of one of two ways you can look at a tough time. It's either it's going to propel you into the future. Eventually you'll find success or you can look at it as, oh man, it's things aren't going well right now. And that's just having that long-term positive vision for yourself. So I love your attitude, love your lifestyle, very inspired by you. Where can our listeners and other people follow you? Um, okay. Instagram is a uh, be champion minded. Um, Twitter, my name at Alistair McCall and Facebook, Alistair McCall page, all books are available on Amazon. And of course I have my, my podcast as well, champion minded, which, um, is on a few platforms. It still needs to go on Spotify, but it's on iTunes. It's on Amazon podcasts, YouTube, and via my, my website, alistairmccall.com. So there's a few places you can get it. Awesome. Wow. Thank you so much, Alistair. This has been the most fun conversation. Likewise. Thanks so much. I mean, uh, I, I love the questions as well. So um, thank you very much for having me.